were there in production. Yeah, my wife is concerned. There's supposed to be waves and in the bump video, but there wasn't. That's okay. We'll just keep going. Um, good morning, everybody. My name is Scott. I am the lead pastor here at the old Jacob's Well. Lovely to have you. We have been in a series in the Psalms, and today we're going to do something different uh, that you probably already kind of felt in uh, those, those readings, which we're going to cover a group of Psalms together. Uh, that are called the, the Songs of Ascent. So this is, if you look, this is why I would love for you to f- have a physical Bible. By the way, there's Bibles underneath the chairs um, in front of you, so you could grab one of those. But go with me to Psalm 120, and you will notice that from Psalm 120, and if you turn all the way over to Psalm 134, every single one of those Psalms is labeled with the same label, which is what? A song of ascent. So that's what we are talking about this morning. And actually, last week, the psalm that we covered, Psalm 84, many people argue, is one of these psalms. It just wasn't put in this particular collection. And so, um, so we introduced this concept a little bit. One of the things that I was thinking about, my sister and her family are here in town. They are dropping off my oldest niece to college, which just so weird. Um, and wonderful. And we're so excited for you, Callie. And Yes. <laughs> Um, but makes me feel very old. Uh, and one of the things that it made me think of was growing up, um, going on road trips, and the sorts of songs that we would listen to on road trips. Our family was, growing up, was uh, there'd be a heavy dose of like James Taylor in there. Uh, in my mind, I'm going... We were never going to North Carolina, but that's, but that's the song that we were always singing. Um, and various other things that just became associated. My dad really loved the song, Jeremiah was the bullfrog. So we'd blast that in the car and all sing that. And maybe you have something similar. This, uh, uh, I coach my little guy in basketball and baseball, and he always makes a playlist um, for going to games or going to practice. You know, it gets fired up. Um, and so a lot of like video game songs and all that. And this whole idea of playlists that become associated with, with just certain things in your life. The Songs of Ascent, if you'll go with me, are a playlist that Israel would have worked its way through at least three times a year. Three times a year, when you're growing up in ancient Israel, you would, wherever you lived in Israel, for three times, for three different festivals, you would, you would go to Jerusalem. And especially as you neared Jerusalem, there was very much an elevation change. You would be moving up toward Jerusalem, and particularly up towards the temple where those festivals would have had, um, would, have, would have been celebrated, and where the various things that would go on during these festivals. And historians tell us that what these 15 psalms, Psalm 120 to, to 134, and the couple others that are included as songs, are, are the songs that they would sing as they ascend to Jerusalem for these festivals. These are the songs of ascent. You catching that? Pretty cool, right? And so just picture this. You're a kid in Israel, and three times a year, every, you know, every few months, all right, kids, you know, pack up the car, let's get in, turn on the Spotify, and you would work your way through these 15 songs. Now, of course, the analogy breaks down, because one, obviously you're not in a car, but really what you would do is you'd go with your entire town. You'd go with at least your family and your extended family, but normally entire villages would go up. And so entire villages would go up, and as they went, they're singing these. These are songs. Now, we don't have the melodies to them. Somewhere along the line, we lost the sheet music, so to speak. But like, we don't know exactly how they're sung, but these are songs that would have been sung 
as you go up. So you grow up as a kid, and these songs sort of work their way into, into who you are, and they become associated with these journeys that you would take several times a year. Now, you're a parent, or you're an adult, and maybe you have some kids, you have nieces, nephews, whatever it is, and you're teaching them these songs as you're going up for these festivals. What you'll hear in these is, um, as you go through them, we're not going to read every word of every one, but if you were to go through them, with that setting in mind, you begin to say, like, oh yeah, it makes sense that these are the kinds of songs that they would sing as they headed towards this journey. And what's really beautiful about this, and we said this last week, is that journey from home, from home as you know it, to Jerusalem, or rather, life as you've usually known, into the very presence of God, becomes this metaphor for life itself. That journey becomes very much associated with the, the much sort of bigger journey of faith, journey of life. And so these songs not only provide a soundtrack and a background to the, the specific journey that you would take three times a year to these festivals, what they're meant to do is to shape the singers, to shape the ones who, who, are, who are actually working their way through consistently these songs, to shape them into a certain kind of people on their journey of life, on their journey from life as they once knew it into the very presence of God, right? Do, do you hear already some of that movement from life as we've known it into something far greater? So with that in mind, let's, let's just sort of, uh, let's work our way through, and, and I'll try not to get lost in too many details here, but check out how Psalm 120 starts. It's a really interesting psalm to start these songs of ascent. And I don't think that there's necessarily, I don't want to put like too fine a point on this and say there's a perfect progression between them, but there's enough here. I think especially the first and the last one are here very much on purpose, which is why I'm going to read the whole first one. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I'm for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Whatever is going on here, and again, we won't get lost in the details. Here's, here's what this is saying. It's saying, I'm not content with where I am now. Especially uh, verse 5. Woe to me that I sojourn that I, that, and sojourn is, is this term that in the Old and New Testament are both associated with, yes, Israel's journey um, from, from captivity in, in Egypt to the promised land, but it becomes itself a metaphor for life. And so, woe to me that, that I'm living my life in this other place. And Meshech is this super far off place. This is like saying, woe to me, man, I'm living in Timbuktu, right? Like this is just kind of like as far as you could imagine living, that I dwell among the tents in Kadar. What the psalmist is saying here is, I'm tired of life as I've known it. I'm tired of being surrounded by what I'm surrounded by. I'm tired of being immersed in a culture that wants everything but what I actually most deeply need. I'm tired of being surrounded by people who call me to a manner of life that's so out of step with what God would have for me. Now picture, right? this would have been likely the first song you sing as you start your journey to Jerusalem. 
We're tired of life as we've known it, right? Like is basically what they're saying. You can picture this. What's really beautiful here is when you say, well, what's the metaphor here? Or, or how is this working at that deeper level of, well, life is also a journey. Right? It, that all of our journeys with God, that the life of faith begins with a dissatisfaction with life as we've known it. With a dissatisfaction with what we Inwardly, what the culture around us has defined as the good life, has defined as what peace is, has defined as what, what will actually satisfy us. Eugene Peterson, who's probably most famous for uh, writing the, the message translation of the Bible, but who far more significantly was a beautifully faithful pastor for 50, 60 years, uh, mostly in one place, and that's the experience that he's even writing out of uh, in the message and, and then in the many books he's, he's written. He wrote this beautiful book with a great title. It's like just one of those golden titles. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And it's basically a book about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But what he does is he works through these psalms. He works psalm by psalm through the songs of ascent, one by one. Wonderful book. Uh, what's really cool about that title even is he's borrowing that title from Friedrich Nietzsche, um, the sort of like most, you know, yeah, exactly. Oh, you know your stuff, Cindy. Um, you know your philosophy, right? Like one of the most anti-God, anti-Christian uh, philosophers of all time thought there was nothing and we just need to deal with it and all those things. And Nietzsche said, the only thing that makes life worth living is a long obedience in the same direction. Give yourself fully to something and maybe you'll find a little meaning in it. And Peterson takes that up and he says, yeah, I, I know a long obedience in the same direction. That'll give you fulfillment, right? Um, so great book. But here's what he says about this opening psalm. He says, that the kind, of, the kind of start to the psalmist's journey that it's talking about is a rejection that is also an acceptance. A leaving that develops into an arriving. A no to the world that is a yes to God. I think that's a pretty good summary of that, that fork in the road moment in all of our stories where it can feel like a rejection, but it develops into an acceptance. It can feel like a leaving, a terrifying leaving of life as you've known it, but it comes this arriving into the very presence of God. It's a no to the world, but a yes to something far more significant. So that's, that's the beginning of the journey. I, I love this in a one-time way for those of us who have maybe never made a commitment to follow Jesus and to say, have you reached that point where you look around and you go, man, I've been living this way for far too long. And I'm so dissatisfied with it. And what the world promises, it just can't deliver on. And so, so maybe it's time for me to try something new. Maybe it's time for me to say no to these things. And maybe there's a yes on the other side of it. I also think that there's something here for those of us who have followed Jesus for, for some amount of time. Is that there's also a sense in which returning to the presence of God, going back, maybe after, maybe after just a day of being immersed in this world, a day of being immersed in life as, as sort of we're naturally inclined to live it, that being gone from the presence of God always takes this, this fork in the road moment to say, I'm tired of it. I'm dissatisfied with a life apart from the presence of God. Maybe this is a season in which you've been far from God. And there is this invitation to look around and say, do you have that soul-level dissatisfaction that is actually an invitation 
from the one that your soul is actually longing for. It's one of the things that I hear here. In an otherwise fairly like brutal, fairly honest psalm, is the psalmist saying, yeah, there's actually a kind of negative motivation that ultimately turns into this positive experience of the presence of God, where we just say, I've had enough. I'm tired of it. You ever gotten to this place? You ever gotten to this place by like, you know, 1 p.m. at work, <laughs> where you're like, I just need something else. I just need a breath of fresh air. And what we're so inclined to do is think we need, we need right, more scrolling on our phones, or we just need to, you know, veg out and, and watch what we want to watch, or I just need to be alone, or I just need to be with people, or whatever your version of it is. And the psalmist is saying, look, all of those things are great and have their place in your life. But you might continue to feel dissatisfied until you go to the only one who can, who can satisfy on, on the deepest level. Right? It's an invitation in. It's a, it's a movement. It's at the base of the mountain. Something's got to make us say it's worth going up. Right? That's why the songs of ascent start in the pit. Because something has to push us to say it's worth climbing. It's worth going up. Psalm 121, uh, fairly, uh, fairly well known, at least start to, to the psalm, is I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Right? I lift my eyes up. Um, this is really interesting because uh, I lift my eyes up to the hills. So now you've got a picture. They've left their town. They're moving towards Jerusalem. And all around them, most of the people and the geography that they're coming from would have been hill country. And to lift your eyes up to the hills, which sounds really lovely because we've turned this into poetry if you've been around church, if you're sort of familiar with the Psalms. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from, right? Like, but when you really think about it, if you're, if you're in this type of country, you know what comes down from the hills? Not good things. Not good things, right? Like there's robbers up above. Um, what are, for some reason this just came to mind. What are those little things in Star Wars? that sort of peek out, those little men with the hoods? Jabberwockies, right? Or ja what are they? What are they? Jabberwockies are the dancers, right? They're the break dancers. Who is it? Jawas? Oof, I do not know my Star Wars. I'll take my son's word for it, though. Um, Jawas, uh, right? Like those little things, right? Like scary stuff, scary stuff. Storms come from the hills. This is someone saying, now I'm out on the journey... Anything can happen. There's, there's potential danger on this journey. So where does my help come from? His help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. They're saying, look, yeah, on this journey, things can come, right? Like we've taken this journey enough to know that, you know, you get flat tires or you run out of gas or storms pop up or there's, you know, uh, no vacancy at the hotel that you normally stay at, or whatever it is, right? Like on this journey, we look around and we say, yeah, this doesn't necessarily go flawlessly. But who helps us? The creator of heaven and earth. The one who created those hills. The one who created me. The one who put all of this in motion. That's the one who helps me. Right? Our help along the way is no one less than the creator of heaven and earth. Psalm 122, moving a little quickly. I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. In other words, ooh, it's that time of year again? Great. I, oh, I remember, right? All I have to do is close my eyes and remember what it's like 
to be standing in Jerusalem and, and just remember how good that feels. Maybe you've had experiences like this in your own walk of faith where there's just these moments that you can reconnect to where you go, man, I knew that I was in the presence of God in that moment. And man, if there's an opportunity to pursue that, even if that's in, in just some smaller way, even if that's just to glimpse that in the quietness of my own living room, if that's getting up on Sunday even when I don't want to and going and being with the people of God because that's the setting where this so often happens. My heart delights to have the opportunity to go into the presence of God. You can almost feel the climbing up. This is good. This is good. Remember what's up there. Remember how good it is to be with God. The psalmist is reminding us. Psalm 123, to you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens. You can almost picture it's nighttime and, and you know, there's no, there's no lights anywhere. There's no electricity anywhere. And they're looking up. And they're saying, man, our, our eyes now, now look heavenward. And we're reminded that there's a God who stands behind those stars. The reason why I had Mark uh, read Psalm 124 is I, I just think that it's a beautiful... Um, I want to say it's a beautiful reminder to be reminded. Uh, listen, listen to this psalm again. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, which I love that. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. You, you get the sense. This is a worship leader. This is someone saying, guys, you know this song. I go first and then you go. You repeat after me. Let Israel say. That seems to be what's going on here. That's not just like a poetic thing. That's, that seems to be part of the song. Is I go, and then you repeat. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we've escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's that repeated refrain. Our help, our help, our help. So our help comes from the Lord. That's more of a sort of a theological statement about who God is. This one gets more specific. This one says our, our, we had specific help from God. There were specific things that he rescued us from. And I think that why this is told in metaphorical language is you can imagine that this would change over the generations. And yet there was always something. You hear this in many of the Psalms. There's always a responsibility for one generation to tell the next generation of the wonderful things that God has done. And the Psalms are confident every generation will have something to say. Every single generation will have a story to tell. Stories to tell. And maybe even more audaciously, Every single follower of Jesus has a story to tell about the ways in which we were rescued, about the ways in which we would have been swallowed whole by things if it had not been for God, by troubles and suffering, by loss, by our own sin and rebellion, by the temptation of this world and by a lifestyle that beckoned us forward. And yet we were rescued like a bird out of a trap. And you can imagine that as this song was sung, picture an entire village singing this. You could picture aunts and uncles and grandmothers and grandfathers and teachers and parents turning to the children and saying, have, have you, do you know my story of rescue? 
You know what happened to me? Have, have I told you this one yet? Did I ever tell you the time that God did this? And this would have been part of the rhythm of going up. But I think sometimes for most of us, our circumstances in a present moment are just so much louder than pretty much anything else. Louder than any hope we have in front of us that we might be delivered from this. And I think one of the things that's meant to shout from behind us to help us in those moments of panic and anxiety and where is God and how is this going to turn out is God's faithfulness behind us. We're not good at this. I'm not good at this. And I'm guessing you're not good at this. I mean, part of the reason why we're not good at this is because we live in a culture that's just not good at one generation to the other of anything. Our normal thing is one generation is very suspicious of the other generation and vice versa, right? Like, what do you have to tell me? And then those of us who are a little bit older are like, what are these kids doing, right? Um, and there's just this suspicion rather than this sense of continuity of, hey, we're living in the same story. Tell me your version of it. It can feel like we're living in these different stories. And I think one of the best things that we can do for this younger generation, again, whether you're a parent, whether, whether you're a mentor, whether you're a teacher or whatever, is say, hey, look, yeah, culture changes, clothing changes, music changes, all that stuff changes, right? God doesn't. And let me tell you about his faithfulness, because I bet as you journey with him, some of this stuff will start to, to be familiar, to sound familiar. The patterns will be very familiar, right? You get a bunch of Christians, I don't care what age they are, in a room who start telling stories of the faithfulness of God, and you're going to hear some patterns. You're going to hear some familiar things and go, wow. That's what you experienced in 1941 or whatever, because that's what I'm experiencing now. Yeah, with different music in the background and different clothing and all this technology and all that, but God is God, and we need to extol his faithfulness to ourselves and then to the next generation. I actually kind of want to like, um, give you some space to experience this. Not much. I'm not going to make it weird. I just want to give you two minutes. Because maybe it's been a really long time since you called to mind the goodness and faithfulness of God in your story. So I'm just going to give you two minutes, whether you want to jot this down, whether you want to put this in your phone, or you just want to close your eyes and pray it back to God. And say, when has God been faithful in your story? What has he rescued you from? When did you unmistakably know this was only possible if it was God's intervention that did it? I just want you to take a couple minutes to just consider that, and then we'll keep working through these points. I'll keep track of the time.
into what came to mind for you, but I would just issue one extra challenge, which is I just encourage you to share that with someone. I think that that's what we see modeled in these Psalms, is that stuff isn't just for us. That sometimes the most encouraging thing is to hear someone else's story about God's faithfulness. Right? There's seasons where God's faithfulness feels so far from us that we need to be carried by others who have experienced that, who are still clinging firmly to that. And so maybe especially, I, I challenge the parents, maybe there's something that on the ride home today or at lunch or whatever, you just say, I don't think I've ever told you this story about when God did this. Whatever that is, I would, I would just issue that, that simple challenge. Let's keep going. Those who trust in the Lord, Psalm 125, are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. I just love this. This is one of those verses that I would circle in your Bible. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. Right? I don't know what your image of God is. Um, that's a very significant thing. But this, this speaks specifically not just of who you think of God as, but I wonder how you think of God spatially. Is he up there? Aloof? Um, is he somewhere out ahead and you've got to kind of catch up? Um, he's like, come on, uh, you know, we can talk when you finally catch up to me. Is he way back there and you feel like you're out on your own kind of figuring stuff out and every now and then you turn back, you're like, how am I doing, right? Is he by your side? I just, I, I mean, think about that, right? How do you think of, when you think of God, now some of you are like, I, I never think of God at all. But, but even as I ask that question, I wonder what comes to mind for you, even if you're not a follower of Jesus. Like, what, what, do you, what do you think of spatially with God? And this psalm says something that sounds metaphorical, but that we actually know is, is literal, especially on this side of the cross, is that God surrounds us. He isn't merely just out ahead. He isn't merely just by our side. He isn't merely behind us. He surrounds us. Now, look, I'm not talking about some weird, like, pantheism where he's in every tree and leaf and all that stuff but there is this sense in which I would say at least relationally we're to understand that God is ever present on every side and every direction that we could possibly imagine he surrounds you here I also can't help but think of of the way a, a parent surrounds particularly a young child right in an embrace right? ever thought of do you feel like you have permission to think of God that way that's what they're singing that's what they're telling your children Yahweh surrounds us from this time forth and forevermore. Right? Picture, I can picture an older generation saying, even when we're gone, from this time forth and forevermore, God surrounds his people. What a beautiful witness. Psalm 126, very similarly, is talking about when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. This is almost certainly talking about when God brought his people back from exile. We were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. I don't know what that sound is either, by the way. I know you're curious. I have no idea what that is. Pete, are we okay? Okay, Pete says we're okay. So if Pete says we're okay, we're fine. Um, very similar themes in the next few songs. I'm going to jump to Psalm 131. This is such an interesting one. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. 
such an interesting psalm that it shows up in these ascents, right? It's different. It has a different vibe to it. It doesn't sound as much like, oh, what is this on the journey? But I think what this is talking about is a particular posture of faith that develops over time as we mature as, as God's people, as we mature, in our case, as followers of Jesus, is our hearts are not lifted up. This is talking particularly about, um, really in combination with the next one, my eyes are not raised too high. This is talking about, I'm not a prideful person. Um, I think eyes lifted up specifically is talking about, I don't forget other people. I don't see myself as better than other people, and I don't forget other people in how I go about my life, right? Which I think is a, a, a good combo to understand pride. Because I think sometimes we think of pride as primarily I'm better than others. I am superior from others. And surely that's pride. And that's to be snuffed out. But there's also a kind of pride that, um, that doesn't regard oneself very highly. But that, is, that leads us to being equally as self-focused as that first kind of pride. I think both are being talked about here. That both are things that God would have us reject. Is, is, yeah, of, of course, don't see yourself as someone who is superior to others, as better than others, who lifts their eyes above others and says, you are not worthy of me and my attention. But also don't be someone whose eyes are cast so low that you equally forget others. Because all you can think about is, is your whatever, is your lack of ability to measure up to whatever standard you're putting on yourself. That both actually keep us from this Godward posture that he talks about as the psalm goes on. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What seems to be going on here is this isn't a rejection of ambition. This isn't like, so I just live my little lowly life and I just, you know, sort of uh, wallow away in my days with nothing too marvelous and nothing too great for me. Instead, what he's saying are these specific words, even, even the words that the psalmist chooses here, the the uh, great and marvelous, too great and too marvelous, are very specifically words that are often associated with God's works in the world. That God does great things. That look what the Lord has done and isn't it marvelous in our eyes. This is the kind of language that the psalmist is picking up. In other words, God, I don't put myself in the position of God. I don't occupy, I don't act as though my life is ultimately under my control. A lot of, (laughs) I think very few of us would ever um, openly say, and not because we we're trying to be deceptive, but I don't think most of us would be like, yeah, I think of myself as God. I know that there's a God, but I think I do a better job than him. So I'm God, right? And yet, functionally, the way we behave day in and day out absolutely betrays the fact that that is where our hearts largely are at. I think that I do a better job of running my life than God does. I think my desires make a lot more sense than what God seeks for me to desire. I think me making this decision that seems like it would lead to joy and fulfillment and pleasure and all that is a lot better than what God is asking me to deny. I think my yes is better than God's no, and I think God's no is inferior to my yes, right? And so we function as God. And what the psalmist is saying is, over time, I have learned not only to to not be prideful in myself in either of those ways, I've also taken the posture that, God, you're better at, at it than I am. You're better at it than I am. You know better. You're actually wiser, right? Like if you've ever, <laughs> what this makes me think of is like, if you've ever coached kids, 
I mentioned before that, that I coach my little guy in, in baseball and basketball. It's just an extraordinary thing to have like a six-year-old look at you and be like, I know that's how you think a basketball is shot, but I think it's actually shot like that or whatever. And you're like, wow, you really, you really think your way is better. You know, like, no, there's actually a way to do this. Like, you know, watch TV and like, I know Steph Curry thinks he knows what he's doing, but I got my own technique and I'm, you know, going to be better than Steph Curry. It's like, but over time, what do you do? Over time, you realize, no, there's people that are better at this than me. And there's people who know better. And I'm only actually going to become what I desire to become insofar as I submit myself to that superior wisdom. Right? The best athletes, the best musicians, the best actors have all at some point submitted themselves to really great teachers. And if that's true on the human-to-human -human level, Right? The distance between even my wisdom and the wisdom of a six-year-old basketball player, do you know this, is infinitely less. That distance is less than between my wisdom and God's wisdom. And so how much more should I be willing to submit myself to the God who has given me instruction on how life works best and say, you know what, at some point, God, I do not give myself to the role of God. You do it better than me. And so I'm submitting myself. And then he uses this beautiful metaphor. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. You know what this image is? You know what a weaned child is? It's a, it's a child who's, who's done breastfeeding and, and now can, can be fed normal food. And it's saying that's a good analogy for the posture of faith, which is interesting because why, why isn't it an unweaned child? Why isn't it, you know, I know this is weird, but a breastfeeding child, right? It's because that baby only values the mother for the thing that it desperately needs. A weaned child has come to understand that that mother will provide what that child needs when it needs it. And so it is able to be quieted in the mother's arms, right? Do you remember this? Little babies? Some of y'all are in it. You're like, do I remember this? I lived it last night, right? Um, mom walks in the room. What happens? freak out, right? Like, ah, there it is. There's my, you know, like, there's my only hope of life. There's my only sustenance. Give it to me, give it to me, give it to me, right? This is saying there's a different posture when a mother walks in a room where a child opens her arm and says, mommy, give me a hug. Because what's the difference? The difference is one is about, I primarily experience you as the provider of what I think I need when I need it versus I experience the light in you for who you are. And I am quieted in your presence precisely because I trust that you will give me what you know I need when you know I need it. It's saying that's, that's, that's what a mature soul, isn't it a beautiful image? A mature soul with God is not like an adult because so often adults think we don't need anything and I can provide for myself. No, it is like a weaned child. Isn't that a beautiful image? Of what It's a nuanced image, but the nuance in there is so beautiful. And so do we want God? Do we go to God primarily, or if at all, when we need what we think we need? Or have we gotten to the place where merely being in his presence is a comfort and a quieting to our souls because we know we are now close to the provider and to the wise one who knows what we need when we need it. Again, picture singing this several times a year. 
Picture being back home, them saying, what was, that? what was that one about a wean child? Sing me that one, right? And this working itself deep into someone's soul. We're getting toward the end of our journey here in more ways than one. Psalm 133 was read as well. Love this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This psalm is talking about unity among God's people. Deep, true community among God's people. And it says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Really love this, this pairing of good and pleasant. Good here really talks about, it is how God intended the world to be. God created the world, he looked out on it, and he said that it was good. That's that word here. It is good. God intends for people to dwell in unity. This, this is the world that God created. Everything else is not as God intended. So when we dwell in unity... We are actually living into the purposes for which God created the world. But he doesn't stop there. He says it's good and pleasant. So if good is, uh, as Pastor John Piper says, if, if good is what ought to be, pleasant is what, is what our souls get to enjoy. It's not only good. It's not only filling God's purposes. It's not only us actually going back to how God, right? There, there's obedience in dwelling in harmony with others, in unity with others. It's an obedient act. It's also a joyful one. Right? And this is, this is just this simple reminder that we come back to again and again in the Psalms, that life with God is the most joyful kind of existence. Not happy all the time, but I'm talking about deep wells. Regardless of external circumstance, that there is a kind of manner of life that is pleasant for the human soul. And it says unity among God's people is, is, is not only good, not only what we need to do, it's what we get to do as God's. It's pleasant to the soul. It's joyful to the soul. Then he uses really interesting metaphors. It's like unity among God's people is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. I bet that's probably what you would have said as the appropriate analogy for unity. What's it like when God's people are unified? First thing that comes to mind, it's like oil. You know, the oil on the beard, then it runs down on the collar. Like, what are we doing here? Um, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. What? Um, it's a little confusing, but let's work through it. So it's like oil... That's poured, this is, this is the anointing oil. This is when Aaron, the first chief priest, the priest of all priests. What's a priest? Priest is someone who stands between God and humanity. And when Aaron was first put in that position, he was anointed as a, as a sign of that. He was, it, was the, it was deeply embedded in, in the, the ceremony by which Aaron took that role. The oil was placed upon him. The oil of anointing. And it says, watching that process... 
And as this oil is poured out, it's poured out excessively such that it runs down, not just his head, it's not just a little dabble, it's not just a little sprinkle. They pour it out on him, right? And it goes all the way down his beard and all the way onto his robes. He says, that's what unity's like. <laughs> Why? I don't know, but, but I have some thoughts, right? One, I think that there's something about both these images, the, the oil running down and the dew coming down off the mountain. It's from above. It's a gift from above. It goes from up to down. It's something that God gives us as a gift. It's something that originates with him and then comes down as a blessing to us. That's the image of the dew. The dew of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was, was by far the highest mountain in that region. And so you could see it from, from a longer distance, certainly than you could see Mount Zion, the, the place where God's temple was. And, and what this is getting at is that some of the dew that would start all the way up there would eventually make its way all the way to Zion. It's, it's a blessing that goes from, from all the way up there down to all the way here. I think that's one of the things that this has in common, that unity is a gift that God gives. It's one of the things he so desperately wants for us. He wants us to be in community. He wants us to be known among his people within church. Right? Like it's really important to be involved in Christian community. Like if you're going away to college and you're going to be a freshman and you're wondering, what should I prioritize when I get to campus? Being among God's people really matters. <laughs> now I get five bucks from your mom. Um, it really does though, right? Because it's, it's what God wants us to experience. It also, I don't know about you, but <laughs> I love this. Um, this is where poetry is helpful because it's, it's evocative and it makes us think, what do you think of when you think of someone having oil poured on their face and then it going all the way down? Are you like, oh, that sounds great. What do you think? It's messy, right? Community, unity in God's people is messy. I think we can say that. I wonder if that's why. Even the dew of the morning when you go out, right, and your car is full of the dew, you're kind of like, okay, cool, I'm glad that there's moisture in there, but like, it's a little messy, and yet it's a blessing. It's a good thing. Yet it's a little messy. I think the same goes for community. What does oil do? Oil softens in those times. It's like moisturizer to the skin. It's also, if you go back, we don't have time to do this, because I said we weren't going to get lost in details, but if you go back to Leviticus, and when it talks about what this oil was made of, everything in it is fragrant. Everything is like walking through the perfume section in Macy's, which is always an experience, right? And you're just like, inundated with fragrance. That's what this is. It loads up the fragrances. So it's, it's, it's sacred. It's coming down from above. It's a little bit messy, but it also ha it's a softening agent. It, it makes things that were brittle, it makes them a little bit more pliable. Isn't that what community does for us? Come in a little brittle. I don't want to be with these people. What are they going to do for me? And then you come out and you go, man, it's good to, for me to be with others, right? I don't care if you're an extrovert or an introvert. There's a sense in which specifically among the community of the people of God, there's a brittleness that can be met by the, by the moisturizing agent of community. That's really unique, right? There's also the fragrance, right? It smells good. The world doesn't want a divided church. It smells terrible to the world. All the nonsense that's going on in evangelicalism in our country, it's not good for the gospel, y'all. It smells nasty to the world. But you know what's beautiful? is little teeny tiny local communities like ours that people walk into and they go, there's something that smells different in here, right? There's something, there, there's a fragrance 
to community that is really unique, right? What is dew? Dew, dew gives life. It drops down and it becomes nutrients for the soil. That's what I just think, as random as these appear to us, the more that you really let them wrestle around, this is what good poetry does, just wrestle with it in your head. You go, man, I don't know that I could do better than these two analogies for what unity and genuine community is among the people of God. There's one thing, I was thinking this week, there's one thing that makes community really, really necessary um, that came to mind this week. I I don't think it's just one thing, but, but there's a really unique thing. And then there's one thing that makes it really hard. The one thing that makes community really necessary, and this is um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's, who's easily one of my favorite theologians from the last century, um, ultimately was killed by the Nazis because he was implicated potentially in a plot to, to kill Hitler, you know, my kind of theologian, um, or just for being a dissident and starting a, a seminary, which was illegal at that time. He wrote, uh, the, the primary act of resistance that he did, that we know he did fully, is he started a seminary and built a community where they trained pastors, which was wildly illegal in Nazi Germany. And he was uh, eventually arrested for that. But while he was in that community, he wrote one of his best books, um, which is called, uh, it's called Life in Community. Um, and, uh, and he just talks about the, the kind of existence that, that he wanted these seminarians to experience, these people who were training to be pastors, underground pastors in Nazi Germany. And one of the more powerful things that he says is, um, one, that our community with one another consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. In other words, Christian community uniquely ought not be based primarily on what community is normally based on. I like you, you like me. We have similar interests. You think like I think, I think like you think. We sort of look alike. We run in the same circles. We're socioeconomically similar, right? Like, no, no, no. Christian community comes down from above. It's given to us, and it is based solely on what Christ has done to both of us. I am in community with you. You are a brother or sister of mine, not because we've chosen that. It's because of something that's happened to both of us. It's something that's been done to us. If you have been bought by the blood of Jesus, bow the knee and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, you are my brother, you are my sister. Kind of like whether we like it or not. And then you end up in local bodies like this. You end up in a local church and you look around and and I think that that even gets more urgent to say, look, if you're going to be here, right? This is why membership is important at Jacob's Way. If you're going to say, yes, we're in here, that means you you have not chosen everyone in this church, right? Like we don't let you interview everyone here before you become a member and say, yeah, I got about 70% hit rate on people I would want to be in community with, right? Like that would be all so modern. That's not what you do. You say, because I happen to be here, I believe that God sovereignly has placed me here, and therefore this is the community that I'm going to be a part of. Simply because God has done something to us in this time and place. So this is us. This is us as the church. But this is the thing that I think makes community really necessary. He says, in light of that reality, it is often the case, and Rachel was sort of even getting at this in the liturgy. I wonder if this was in her mind, because it's something that I've heard her teach before, she's heard me teach before. But he says, it is often the case that the Christ in my own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of my brother or sister. It sounds almost heretical. <laughs> but what he's saying here is when it comes to things like my assurance of my salvation. Am I really a Christian? Right? You ever have these experiences? 
you do something that you know you're not supposed to do or you continue to struggle with something you've struggled with for a long time or you just go through a season of doubt or you go through a season of suffering and you say, am I even a Christian? Things can get really weak internally if you turn inward for evidence of that. What can be really powerful, infinitely more powerful than just continuing to go inward, no, I really am. No, I remember when I put my faith in him. No, I guess I am. I guess Is a brother or sister come and say, I know you, I see you. I know what you're going through, and I believe that you're still following Jesus, and I think you're a Christian. Why? Probably even as I say that, you're like, I'm not allowed to say that. What? Of course you're allowed to say that to a brother or sister. Say, I've seen God's faithfulness. I've seen God's presence in your life. I've seen God's spirit work and change you. And yeah, you're not perfect. And yeah, you got a long way to go. And yeah, I know that you have struggles. But I want to say, I want to speak life over you and assurance over you. Or even when it comes to encouragement, right? Just encouraging ourselves, you're doing great, <laughs> is a lot different than a brother or sister coming along and saying, I'm watching you from afar, right? You can say to someone you might not even know, I know what you're going through. I know that we're not super close, but I just want you to know that you showing up here every Sunday is such an encouragement to me. You know what that does to someone's soul? The Christ in my heart is often weaker than the Christ in the word of a brother or sister. I think that that's what makes Christianity. In fact, Bonhoeffer goes on to argue that we were never made to get assurance from ourselves. That the fact that it's so hard to be isolated on your own and still be super confident that you're in among the people of God is precisely how God set it up so that it would draw you to community. So basically, so that you'd get yourself back in church and get around brothers and sisters who can begin to speak things that you can't speak to yourself. That's the thing that makes community really, really urgently necessary. The thing that makes community hard right now in 2023 in America um, is so many things. But <laughs> I read this way. I've been thinking about this for like three weeks because I read it a while ago. And it's just been tossed around in my mind and, and in my soul is someone said, right, like it's, it's popular now to say that our cultural moment is most characterized by something called uh, expressive individualism. Maybe you've heard that term, expressive individualism. That, that, that the good life is being able to take who I really am to discover that for myself and then to express that in the world. Live your truth. You do you. Like that whole mindset is, is the definition of the good life. And so what you have to do is this sort of journey of self-discovery and then this embracing of who you've discovered yourself to be and then expressing that. And then what the world is meant to do is to cheer you on as you express your true self. Right? That is so deeply embedded in who we are. For many of us, we think like, what, is there any other way that culture could function, right? I read an article where someone was saying, it's interesting, this person was talking specifically about the church, it's interesting that we live in this expressive individualism moment, and yet there is this persistent, continued call for community, just like there was 30, 40 years ago before this. People still want community. How do you square those two? Expressive individualism, I want to live my tr truth, I want to I do me, and yet I really want community. And those two things, right, if, if you're in, in ministry, just feel like, man, I, it's hard to bring those two together. And what this person said was, it's because the opposite of expressive individualism isn't community. 
The opposite of expressive individualism isn't community. Because expressive individualism actually does require a kind of community. It requires specifically a community that will cheer on your expression of your true self. Right? This is the power of social media. Right? This is a little bit of a chicken and an egg thing. This is what social media is. It's a community that facilitates expressive individualism. But it's a community that increasingly isolates you only to those people who think like you, who have the same views as you, right? Like your FYP, um, some of you know what that is, right? Like I bet is pretty narrow in what it provides. We'll start benign, right? Like whatever your type of interior designing aesthetic is, your FYP is probably, if that's your thing that you scroll through, it's going to have mostly that. It's not going to have like weird, ornate, you know, like here's a, here's a Roman style of a dining room or whatever. Here's a little beach cottage. It's like, no, if you like mid-century modern, that's what's going to be on your FYP. It narrows everything to if that's your thing, then that's your thing and that's it. So the opposite of expressive individualism is not community. The opposite of expressive individualism, check this out, is authority. It's authority. The thing that ex expressive individualism says is death is to submit yourself to an authority that now assigns to you a certain manner of life. That's suffocation. That's death. That's oppression. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen. Here's, here's, here's where this shows up in the church. The type of community we're calling you to in the church is not to narrow you into what you already are. It's to help you submit to the one who rightly has ownership of your life and who is going to tell you how to live. And that means by definition, Christian community needs to be people unlike us. Generationally, ethnically, socioeconomically, interests, all of those things. We don't want that community. I'm not coming at anyone in here, but I read that and was like, it just sent off a thousand flares in my mind. Of like, that makes sense of so much. That's what makes community so hard. That's what makes it so hard. Because you're like, I don't know if I want to be with these people. That person just said something crazy. And this is my church. Ugh, in D course or whatever, right? Do I have to line up with that? No, 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 no. Well, the only thing that we're submitting to is we're submitting to God. But insofar as we're submitting to God, that means that we have to submit to the community that he's called us to and listen and learn and grow and change and hear and be around some things that might stretch us out of our comfort zone and stay long enough to be changed by that, okay? Because one of the things that church has become for many people is an expression of their identity, just like every other community they're in. And as soon as that identity is contradicted by their church, by one thing said in the pulpit, by one discipleship course lesson, whatever it is, I'm out because this, no, this is no longer something that I can identify with, right? Got to be really careful with that. Got to be really careful with that. Because wherever you go, if, the, if they're actually faithfully holding up the word of God and really submitting to God, there's going to be things that bother you. And if you're in a church long enough and nothing has bothered you, that should bother you even more, right? Because it means that there are, that it, it, it just means a lot of things, right? Do you hear me? That's who we want to be at Jacob's Well. What, I, what, what we need from you as your leaders is the grace for you to stay long enough to allow us to trip over our own feet, right? Like, to allow us to say, like, yeah, that, that wasn't the best way to go about that. Yeah, we could have done better there because guess what? We're submitting to God too, and we're being changed by him, and we're trying our best.
And we're trying to repent when we need to repent, right? And we're trying not to make this. I can tell you right now that, that the elders hold me accountable to not making this church in the image of me. That this would be that our theology would solely and only reflect. That what we do in discipleship course would be what comes from this great, you know, this great mind who's at the top or whatever. God forbid. God forbid. That's who we want to be at Jacob's Well. Last one. This is so beautiful. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. Psalm 134. Who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. I love this. Now you've got to picture this. Now they've gotten there. They show up. They go into the temple. They're clearly in the temple. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord. You know who they're talking to? They're talking to the priests. Come bless the Lord, all you servants in the Lord. How do I know it's a priest? Because it's the servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. That's the priest. Only the priests have to do that. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. I love this. Because they show up and they say, it's almost like they show up late. And they're like, I don't care what time it is. We came all the way from Kadar and we've been in the hills among all this and it rained and we got a flat tire and listen up, we're here to praise God. So you, you, go, you better do what you're supposed to do. Praise the Lord for me. Get a song going. Let's start a little worship is basically what they're saying. Because that's the whole goal. The whole goal is we're in the presence of God. Let's worship Him. We're in the presence of God. Let's actually bow the knee. We're finally where we want it to be. This is the moment of arrival. And they say, come bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion who made heaven and earth. You know what blessing is? I love this. So simple. You know what blessing is? It's speaking well of someone. And they're saying, go speak well of the Lord. Speak well of him. This is what worship is. We need this, right? Rach said so beautifully. Part of what the songs of ascent remind us is there's something about worship. And and here I mean that narrow definite. The worship through song that, that postures us where we need to be, that nothing else can. It's the amazing gift of music. It's why really no one that you've ever talked to when you're like, what type of music do you like? Have you ever had anyone say, I just don't do music? Right, like that's not an answer. There might be some weird answers, right? And Spotify generation, it's like, well, I like a little bit of this. Yeah, we all do, right? But you very seldom get music, no, I, I never listen to music. Because music was given by God to do this, to shape us. And specifically what worship is, is it's speaking well of God. Right? Like if you think worship is a little weird, it's not your thing, you just sort of stand there, just speak well of God. Just use the words of that song. You just mouth them. You don't have got to sing, but speak well of God. Here's where it ends, though. May the Lord bless you from Zion. You know what it's saying? You know what God does? He speaks well of you. Are you ready to... Is your, is your heart at a place where it can accept that? That God... It's not just about us blessing him. The moment of arrival is when we realize God speaks well of us. Right? And in so far as these songs are a metaphor for a life lived in faith, Psalm 134 is the moment of arrival where we will finally be in the presence of Jesus and get what we've longed for, which is to see him face to face. And I guarantee you, we will speak well of him in that moment. And yet I think that why this ends where it ends is the far wilder thing, the far deeper truth of our arrival in that day, face to face with Jesus, is we will hear him speak well of us. Because all that he needs to say to speak well of us is, I know you, I know you, I know you. And you're here now. And you're finally home. You know what strikes me? 
is that this whole Psalm 120 to 134, or I'll do it in your direction, right? 120 to 134. 120, I'm so tired of life as I've known it. I'm so tired of dwelling among wickedness. I'm so tired of this different definition of the good life. I'm journeying. I'm going. And then the moment of arrival over here is, bless the Lord, bless the Lord. And then the Lord blessing you. You know what's crazy? Do you know the only reason why we have hope that we can make that journey? This just struck me so much. Do you know that Jesus' journey was the exact opposite? He was in heaven for all eternity being spoken well of by the Father. Eternally in perfect fellowship. He left that. He descended. Went out into the hill country. Endured everything that we could possibly endure in our journey and worse. Ultimately ended up dwelling not just among the wicked, but becoming sin itself. Going all the way down into that. Such that we can make the opposite journey. And be welcomed by that one who will bear the scars of his going out. And welcome us home finally on our journey. And say, I know you. And I was with you. And I surrounded you the whole time. And look, there's a whole bunch of others. That Motley North Brunswick crew, they're all here waiting for you. Welcome home. May we journey, may we sing on our way, may we have the postures of faith as we learn and develop and grow again and again as we come here on Sundays as we live this journey of faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this truth. Thank you for Jesus who makes any of this possible. Thank you for his own journey from heaven's glory to a sinner's cross. God, that then opened the way that we could journey now away from our sin into your eternal presence. God, I pray that whatever was said here today that that needs to sink deeply into our hearts, God, that it would even through this time of communion. God, that whatever's not of you, that it would just quickly drift away. But God, that, that there would be a word spoken over each of our lives that we needed to hear this morning. And I pray this with confidence because you surround us, because you know each and every one of us deeply. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.